So if you've got a Bible with you, you can open to Mark chapter 6. Uh, last week was Easter. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. And then we reminded ourselves that only in the gospel is there rest and freedom and forgiveness and hope. And we want to resume, though, our series through the gospel of Mark. Our Savior King is the title of that series. If you are new with us and you're looking for archived content on that, you can find that on our website under the Resources tab. You can find both audio content and video content there if you want to catch up to where we are. But we're in Mark chapter 6 this morning, and we'll pick up reading in verse 30, and we'll read down through verse 44 together. If you've got a Bible on your couch there, you can open it up, or a tablet, or something that you're going to follow along with, or it'll be on the screen as we read it together. The beginning in Mark chapter 6, in verse 30, Mark writes these words. He says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They went ashore, and when, they, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go, go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now the disciples are returning to Jesus after Jesus had commissioned them and sent them out to go out and to teach and to heal and deliver throughout the, the towns and villages. And so they come back to Jesus to tell Jesus everything that they had seen, everything that they had done. They report to Jesus all that they had, had witnessed and the way they had been received or the way they had been rejected. So they're coming back to give these reports to Jesus, and Jesus recognizes that upon the heels of their report, they need rest. And so they withdraw away to a desolate place. They get in the boat, they cross the lake, but the crowds follow them there. And when they find themselves there, Jesus is very interesting in the text, and we're going to see in a moment how it all unfolds for us. But whenever we read this particular portion of the gospel accounts, and we read about Jesus feeding the multitudes, this great crowd that had gathered in this desolate place, Oftentimes we envision like the rolling hills next to White Rock Lake in Dallas and that Jesus breaks out a picnic basket and they're all sitting on these red and white tablecloths or blankets and they're sitting there with napkins and plastic utensils and we envision this great, grand, sweet type scene where Jesus is having a picnic with all of His people. 
Right? It's a great thing. And so that's if, if you grew up in church, maybe you saw the flannel board Jesus, right? Moving across the, the, the bulletin board in front of you. And he had a great picnic with his disciples and with the great crowds. But that's not at all the scene that Mark portrays for us. It's not at all the scene that's going on here. And so as we dig into this text this morning, there's really two big ideas that I want to pull out for us and to see what's actually transpiring as Jesus crosses the lake with His disciples seeking rest that they cannot find because the crowds push in on them. And the first thing that we, I think we need to see in this text that I want to pull out of this text for us is this. And listen, it's, it's, it's shocking. Okay, it's shocking because this is not the picnic type scene that you would imagine if you were just reading the text or that you imagine from your Sunday school days in your childhood. Because the first thing I think we need to see in this text is this, the deliverance that we need is greater than the deliverance that we want. You see, when Jesus crosses... The, the lake. Here's the situation as it unfolds. When he crosses the lake and he leaves the villages and towns of Galilee to cross over to the other side, he was headed to the hill country, to the wilderness, to a very sparsely populated area. But that sparsely populated area was a hotbed of resistance to Roman rule and authority in Israel. It was the center of the zealot movement in Israel. And the zealot movement were those who stood for the violent overthrow of the Roman occupation, the violent overthrow of Roman rule and Roman government. And so here is the region that Jesus is moving into. And so the great crowds press in on him there. And Mark tells us that the reason Jesus had compassion, when Jesus sees all of the people coming to him, he says that he was moved with compassion. In other words, he felt deeply within him. His, 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 his emotions were stirred. His deep pity for the people was stirred. And the reason that they were stirred is because he saw that they were following him out into this desolate place as sheep without a shepherd. Now, oftentimes, whenever we read that language of shepherd, what comes to mind is a very pastoral image, and it should. Other places in the scriptures, it's just used that way. But the first place that this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is found in the Bible, it is found on the lips of Moses in Numbers chapter 27. I want to read to you the first place this particular phrase is found in the Scriptures. Numbers chapter 27, as Moses nears the end of his life, he says in verses 16 and following, he says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Moses says to God, let not there be a situation that would arise for the people in my passing that they would be as, a, as sheep without a shepherd. They would be a congregation without someone to lead them. But notice the type of leadership that, Moses, that I think Moses is referring to here and the people understood him to be referring to here. Consider the context in Numbers. Israel is wandering in the wilderness awaiting the land of promise. 
Now Moses has led them thus far, and he's what brought them out of the land of Egypt. God used Moses as the vehicle by which he delivered his people, redeemed them from slavery and bondage and captivity to a foreign government, to a foreign nation. So he's, Moses led them out of Egypt And now they're wandering in the wilderness, awaiting the land of promise after they've left the the bondage of Pharaoh. But after Moses, Joshua would lead them into the land of promise and would have multiple military conquests and campaigns as he drove out the pagan peoples who were living in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So before the people of Israel settled in there, they were, to, they were to dispossess the people who had been living there, worshiping false gods of the land. So when this phrase first appears in the Bible, it is a reference to the leaders who led God's people in monumental ways to overthrow enslaving and occupying nations and peoples. And so when Jesus, listen, When Jesus looks at this great multitude of people, in fact, at the end of the text, we're told that whenever they fed, when when, when everything was all said and done, that there were over five, there were 5,000 men that ate. And most commentators would say, well, that was just the men. There were also women and children. That may be the case, but it also may be that there were only men because these men were coming looking for an insurrection. They were coming looking for a deliverer, someone who would overthrow the Roman army in the same way that Joshua led conquest in the land of promise. They were looking for someone who would release them from foreign slavery in the same way that Moses had released them from the slavery and bondage and captivity in Egypt. And so when Jesus looks into the crowd, He sees that this is the way that they are seeing Him. And so He has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're looking for someone to throw out Rome and reestablish the autonomy and independence of Israel in the land. This is what Jesus perceives as he looks into this crowd. They're looking for someone to overthrow Rome and their local rulers who were set up as puppet kings, as representations of Roman authority. Listen, consider with me for a moment just how the context of Mark unfolds. Immediately before this story, we see Herod beheading John the Baptist. Right, oppressive rule by a Roman puppet king, a local Roman puppet king, beheading John the Baptist because John was the one who stood for truth and confronted Herod and Herod's wife, who was once his Herod's brother's wife that Herod had taken for himself, confronted them over the veracity or the truthfulness of that relationship. And ultimately, at the request of Herod's wife, Herodias, he is beheaded. So you have oppressive Roman rule represented through Herod and his beheading of John the Baptist. And then here comes Jesus. And listen, Jesus has already overthrown natural enemies. Remember in Mark chapter 4, He stills the storm as it rages there upon the sea. He's already overthrown spiritual enemies. Remember, He cast out a legion of demons in Mark chapter 5. He's already overthrown physical enemies. He heals the sick woman who had come to Him, who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and sought healing from all sorts of physicians and all sorts of treatment. She 
had leveraged every resource she had looking for help. And Jesus is the only one who's able to heal her. He has overthrown the final enemy, raising a little girl from the dead by lifting her hand and raising her up. And now the people are saying, here is someone who can overthrow our political and national enemy. Here is one with the power to overthrow Rome, set things right, and restore independence to Israel. In fact, listen, if you don't believe how I'm reading the text, listen, in John chapter 6 and verse 15, we read these words, which is John's account of what's been transpiring here in the same portion of, of Scripture that we find in Mark chapter 6. Jesus perceiving, John 6, 15, Jesus perceiving that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, He withdrew again to the mountain by Himself after all of this feeding of the 5,000 settles down. It was at this time they were going to come and try and force Jesus to be king. And Jesus withdraws because it's not the kind of king He'd come to be in His first advent. Now listen, notice Jesus doesn't respond to this perspective of the people by arming them and giving them combat training. He doesn't build an army for an insurrection. Rather, Jesus is moved with compassion for the crowd because they had false expectations of Him. And look at how He responds. Right? He doesn't arm them. Right? He doesn't do military training. This is, what's goes, this is what goes on. Anytime an insurrection and mounts in the Middle East these days, you see video footage coming out of it of people receiving weapons and training in guerrilla camps spread across the desert. But that's not how Jesus responds. What does Jesus say in verse 34? And He began to teach them many things. Imagine. Imagine what that teaching would have been like. Imagine what He would have said. Now, it's just conjecture and speculation on my part because we, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I can imagine that maybe he addressed their fears and their anxieties, their insecurities. Perhaps he exposed some of the idols of their hearts as he taught them there in the wilderness. Maybe he confronted their bent toward violence and bloodshed. Maybe he challenged them to consider that there are far worse things in them than there are around them. Maybe he'd challenge them to consider that they'd be delivered from, from the things that are within them, not necessarily from Rome, that the greatest threat to their in, eternal well-being was not outside of them, but was within them. Now listen, we don't know what he taught them, but his response to their rally for a political insurrection was compassionate instruction that rest assured would have corrected and clarified their expectations. Because you see, the deliverance that we need is not always the deliverance that we want. So what do, we, what, do we do, what do we do with this? The first thing is this, listen. First thing is this, is that we have to admit that there are worse things in us than there are around us. There are worse things in us than there are around us. While the people thought the worst thing in their lives was the thing around them, Roman occupation, Roman rule, Roman authority. Jesus understood that what was worse than Roman rule in their lives was their own self-rule. He recognized there were things in them that were worse than the things around them. That He could liberate them from temporarily from political and national oppression. But to do so in that day, in that time, would have meant to forfeit His Mission to liberate them from the ultimate oppression and their ultimate enemies. 
See, there are worse things in us than there are around us. Listen, our lust, our anger, and our greed, our foolishness, our cruelty, our coldness and indifference, our apathy, all of those things within our hearts are far worse than our outward external circumstances, our hard-heartedness, our rebellion, the fear of man that resides within our hearts. See, there are far worse things in us than there are around us. And we will never see the deliverance that we need until we admit that there are worse things in us than there are around us. Because we'll always be seeking this deliverance that we want, which may not, in fact, be the deliverance that we need. Listen, not everything that we want is good for us. I, 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 I recognize this on a daily basis with my children. Because not everything that they ask for is good. And I would, in fact, I would be a foolish father if I gave them everything that they requested. Okay, I, I find myself sometimes fighting battles on an hourly basis, particularly in the day of self-isolation, on an hourly basis with their request for sugar. Right? I want more candy. Right? Opening the pantry doors, opening the fridge doors, just slamming Capri Suns, popping sweet tarts, whatever they can find, Easter candy that they can just binge on. Right? But there has to be a, a, a sense of responsibility that I have as their father to where every request that they make of me, I cannot say yes to all of them. I must say no to some of them because not everything that they want is good. Now you would think that we might outgrow that. But do you know that we don't? Because I can say as a 42-year-old man that not everything that I want is good. Not every desire I find within myself is good. In fact, some of those I need to be delivered from today. And you see, Jesus sees what they want and He says to them, it is not good. I'm not going to give you what you want, but rather I'm going to teach you what you need. I'm gonna, that's, that's the expression of His compassion. So we need to admit that there are things in us that are worse than the things around us. For many of us, we also need to stop blaming our circumstances. Listen, this is, tends to be our reality. So often we want God to change the things that are around us and other things that are in us, and we blame the condition of our character upon the condition of our circumstances. But I want you to know that your circumstances are not the cause of your character. They're merely an occasion for the expression of your character. They are the occasion in which it comes out. They're not the cause of it. So we need to stop blaming our circumstances or stop blaming the people who are around us. See, listen, if, if you have gone through the heartbreak of divorce, I want you to know that the worst thing that threatens your life and the life of your children is not your ex, but is your heart's condition towards them. I want you to know that the thing that threatens you most is not your lack of financial resources in these days, but perhaps it is the lack of contentment with what God has provided to you in this season. I want you to know that what threatens you most, listen, is not the external circumstances of a virus that is sweeping across our nation, but it is the internal fear and anxiety that would cripple and paralyze you from following Jesus in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances. See, our circumstances are not to blame for our character. 
Our character is forged apart from our circumstances. Our circumstances are just the stage on which it plays itself out. Because there are worse things in us than there are around us. And the deliverance that we need is not always the deliverance that we want. Which leads us to another thing that we need to do in response to this. Listen, church. Not only do we need to admit that there are worse things in us than there are around us, but we also need to pray for miracles in us as much as we pray for miracles around us. Pray for change in us as much as we pray for change around us. We can pray for God to change our circumstances. And listen, it is right and good that we ought to pray for God to, to, through the wisdom and common grace of modern medicine to bring about anti, uh, like, like antiviral medication that would help treat this virus, to bring about vaccines that would help put an end to this virus. It is right and good for us to pray for those things, for human life to flourish in the world that God has made. But listen, we would be wrong to neglect to pray for miracles in us while we pray for miracles around us. Because how often do we pray for God to change our circumstances when it's oftentimes those very circumstances that God wants to use to change, bring about change in us? To bring about change in us. Because listen, what we need, what I need, what you need is not merely a, a minor tweak to our souls. But what we need is miracles to happen in us. Listen, that's the kind of change that we need. We, like, we, we don't need God to just turn the screw like a, a half inch to the left or a half inch to, to loosen it a little bit or tighten it a little bit. What we need is God to bring about full-scale renovation of our hearts. I need a miracle to happen in me. I need a miracle. I don't know about you. If you, if, if you just need tweaks, maybe you're a, a, a more mature Christian than I am, but I need a miracle to happen in my soul every single day to transform me from one who is selfish to one who is selfless, from one who is greedy to one who is generous, from one who would want to use and manipulate others to one who would want to serve and love others well. I need miracles to happen in me to bring about that kind of change. And so listen, church, in the, if we're going to acknowledge and admit there are worse things in us than there are around us, then we also ought not just to pray for things to change around us, but we ought to pray for things to change in us. Pray for miracles to take place in our hearts. Pray for miracles to take place in our souls. So that's the first thing. The deliverance that I want is not always the deliverance that I need. Because there's a deliverance that I need that is far greater than the one I may want right now or the one that you may want right now. But the second thing, the second big thing that this text teaches us is this, is to trust the sufficiency of Jesus. So you get the shock of Jesus in the first portion of the text. that He's not the kind of Messiah that people are looking for. But you also have the sufficiency of Jesus in the text. And I'm going to show that to you. So Jesus has been teaching for quite some time. The crowds have been gathered for most of the day and Jesus has been teaching and teaching and teaching. Now evening is falling and this great mass of humanity is now hungry. And when the disciples get a sense of just how far removed they were from town, right? they say to Jesus, remember this is a desolate place, Jesus. I don't know if you recognize, there's not a Whataburger down the street. Okay, we can't send them to, 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 to Panda Express to go pick up some chow mein and orange chicken. 
Okay, we're way out here, Jesus. They get a massive sense of the need of the crowd and they want to send them into the surrounding towns and villages to go find themselves something to eat. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, listen, fear not, fledglings, right? I'll give them something to eat. What does he say? You give them something to eat. And the disciples, can imagine the astonishment with which they respond, recognizing it would take nearly a year's worth of wages for the common laborer in Israel to purchase enough food for the crowd that was gathered there. So Jesus tells them to take inventory, and they come up with five loaves of bread and two fish, which Jesus blesses and breaks and instructs the disciples to distribute. Now listen, Jesus doesn't perform a magic trick by the waving of a wand or of his hands, okay? He's not like you know, Harry Potter who just kind of says, be filled with food, and all of a sudden food shows up in their belly. That's not how, what Jesus does here. Jesus is not a magician, but rather Jesus works a miracle, See, Jesus could have spoken a word and the baskets could have descended out of the heavens like the manna fell out of the sky as Israel wandered in the wilderness. But that's not what he does. Rather, he blesses the bread and he breaks the bread. And then he tells the disciples to go out and distribute it. And it is as they go with the provision of Jesus that the, into the impossible that the miracle occurs. See, what the disciples were insufficient to do alone, Jesus shows Himself to be sufficient to do through them. To do through them. Now, look, now listen, look, look at what Jesus hands out to these people. He hands them bread. Now, bread, listen, bread in our day, okay? Bread is a source of carbohydrates right, that many of us cut out of our diets in order to reduce the intake of carbs so that we can reduce the mass of our bodies, okay? If you're looking to lose weight, many people subscribe to a low-carb diet. The first thing they cut is bread, okay? Bread goes in the sh- on the shelf. It does not go in the stomach, All right? That's how we see bread in our culture, but consider how they saw bread in theirs, right? Bread was a staple in their culture, It was life in their culture. It filled their stomachs in their culture. They they ate it on a daily basis. They craved it. It brought fullness. It brought abundance to them. And Jesus' provision of bread for the people in the wilderness may echo the provision of manna that falls down from the heavens as Israel wanders through the desert in the book of of, 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 of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus. But listen, listen, it is also as the manna fell from heaven, God was giving life to His people. So also the bread that Jesus distributes in the wilderness is a symbol of life, of abundance, of fullness that only God can provide. That only Jesus is able to afford says, I'm the only one sufficient enough to give you life, to give you fullness, to bring an abundance into your life, even though you may be lacking things that you think that you need. I can fill you with something that you never thought could bring abundance. Jesus says, I'm the source of life. And listen, everybody 
in our culture is looking for life. Everyone is craving abundance. Everyone seeks after and desires fullness. Even the atheist does. Listen, John Paul Sartre, a famous atheist, once said that, he says this, listen, it's an exact quote. He said, that God does not exist, I cannot deny. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. He says, I don't believe in God, but I'm hungry for Him. And what only He can give. And Jesus says that He alone is able to meet the hunger that even the most staunch atheist says He has. So listen, while Jesus may not be what we expect, who He is is enough to either satisfy or sanctify every hunger we have. He will either fill us Every desire for good things that we have, He will fill. Or every desire for things that are destructive in our lives that will ultimately decay, He will sanctify and change. So He is sufficient to either satisfy or sanctify every desire, every hunger that we have. And notice how He does it. He does it by blessing and breaking. Listen, in verse 41, Jesus receives the five loaves and the two fish, and He does something with them. In verse 41 we read, And He, taking the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to, the, to heaven, and He said a blessing, and He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And He divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. See, Jesus takes the bread, and He blesses the bread, looks up into heaven giving thanks for it, and then He breaks the bread into pieces for the disciples to set before the people. And by the work of Jesus, the miracle of Jesus, it was multiplied to feed the multitude and fill them with life, sustain them in life. And this act, listen, by Jesus in this desolate place in the wilderness would foreshadow another act by Jesus later on in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 14, verse 22, Jesus is gathered with His disciples for the Last Supper, the Passover meal that He would share with them before He went to the cross. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, at the end of that Passover meal, we read, And as they were eating, He, Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Same verbs are used in Mark 6 and Mark 14. He blessed and He broke. He blessed and He broke. And He gave. In Mark 14 to the disciples, he says, take it. Now, he didn't just say take it. He's not just saying take it and like put it in your pocket one day for a rainy day. It's a sense of taking it and eating it, feasting upon it, enjoying it, being filled by it. And he says, this bread, it is my body. It's my body that would be broken for you. See, this event in the wilderness foreshadows what Jesus would one day do at the cross. Even as He hangs upon the cross, you remember what He does. It's recorded in Luke's Gospel, in Luke's Passion account, that He looks out upon the crowds and He says, Father, forgive them. And He breathes His last. He blesses them and then He is broken for them. This act in the wilderness would foreshadow what Jesus would do at the cross. And then through this act in the wilderness, listen, Listen, hear me on this church. Jesus was saying to the people, you have come into the wilderness looking for another Moses. Looking for another Joshua. You want a Moses 
to feed you in the wilderness. You wanted Joshua and Moses to deliver you from Rome. And he says, I want you to know I'm not another Moses. I'm the ultimate Moses. Because Jesus has not come to bring about an old, he's, he's come not to bring about a temporal exodus, but an ultimate exodus. Not just freedom from the political and national oppression for a season, but from sin and death forever. By blessing and breaking, being broken himself. As he cries out, Father, forgive them, and breathes his last. He dies for his enemies, for those who would oppose him, and those who would misunderstand him with all of their false expectations. See, the way Jesus provides a life is by laying his down. The way Jesus fills us with abundance is by being broken for us. And he says to us, take and eat. So what do we do with this? Two things. Two things that flow out of this for us. See, if you see Him doing this as your substitute, in your place, for you, Him giving His life for you as a substitute for your sin, being broken in your place, then you come to see that He's enough for you to become what you cannot be. See, the consistent testimony of the Scriptures is that God calls His people, those who are formed in His image, to be holy as He is holy. But I want you to know, church, that you are absolutely inadequate and incapable of being holy as God is holy in and of yourself. You cannot do it. You will never be... Consider a few things. You, you and I... We, listen, I'm, I'm not just saying you... Apart from me, I'm saying us, you and I, we will never be people who bless those who curse us and love our enemies. We'll never be lovers of our enemies because we're inadequate to do that in and of ourselves. Because our natural, by nature, our natural response whenever someone sets themselves up as our enemy who would persecute us, who would curse us, is not to return it with blessings, but with beatings. We want to seek out revenge, not reconciliation. That is our natural response. And until we see Jesus as our substitute dying for those who were His enemies and those who misunderstood Him with their false expectations, you will never have the power. You'll never be filled with the power that you need and be so satisfied in Jesus that you move out towards your enemies by the power of the Holy Spirit to bless those who persecute you, to pray for those who wound you, to love your enemies. We will never be those who are generous with our time and money. We'll never be that. Until we see just how generous Jesus Himself was of giving His life away, laying His life down. We'll never be those who would lose power rather than leveraging power over people. We won't lose power to serve them, but we will leverage power over people to use them. That's how relationships will work in our lives. That's how relationships work in our lives naturally. See, we will never be those kinds of people until you see Jesus Christ dying for you, blessing and breaking. See, the only way to be filled with bread, the only way to be filled with it is if it is broken. It's the only way you can consume it. 
And until you see Jesus being broken for you, you will never be the kind of person who will be broken for others. But once you see Him doing that as your substitute, then you begin to become what you cannot be as you feast on His Word. All of a sudden, the life of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to fill you. And all of a sudden, now you can become what you could not be apart from Him. And listen, this is good news for those of you who have been striving all of your life to become good enough. See, some of you who are listening right now, maybe you've been striving all of your life to become good enough that God would approve of you, become good enough that God would accept you, become good enough that other people would bring you into their sphere of relationships and allow you into the church. Maybe you thought that you had to put on certain clothing, right? You had to dress yourself up so people couldn't see the decay that was under the surface. You had to put on one image and one face for the crowd whenever you knew in private, that you were someone completely contrary to the facade that you put on before other people because of their expectations. This is good news for you because you know what the truth is? Is that you can become what you cannot be. That's the good news of the gospel. Whenever you receive the work of Christ being blessing you with forgiveness because He was broken for you. That you take of His body and you recognize that He died in your place and that fills you with the very life of God in your being. So that now you're becoming what you could not be. It's no longer pretend. it, It really is now this position of right standing with God beginning to express itself in your practice. And only Jesus is sufficient to do that. But second of all, if you see Him doing this, not only as your substitute, but as your example, you'll come to see that He's enough. He's enough. He's sufficient. That's what it means to be sufficient, right? That He's enough to become what you cannot be and to carry out what you cannot do. To carry out what you cannot do. Look at just how inadequate, helpless, and unqualified the disciples are in this moment. (laughs) Disciples could not scrape together enough resources to go into town, purchase food, nor did they have the time to plant and harvest and process the food, to make the bread, to bake the bread, to go catch the fish, to feed the people. They don't have the time or the money to do this. They are inadequate, they are unqualified, and they are helpless to do what Jesus was asking them to do on their own. And listen, church, when Jesus calls us, when He invites us to follow Him and participate in His mission, I want you to know something. He doesn't take stock of your abilities and assign you tasks that you can handle by yourself. He doesn't look over and go, oh, Jimmy's really good, right, at, 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 at this particular area of, of, of of expertise, and so this is what I'm going to assign to him. Then look over and say, oh, 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 Jane over here, right? She's really good at this particular area of expertise, and so this is what I'm going to, the task I'm going to call her to. He doesn't take stock of our abilities and then assign us tasks that we can do apart from him. Because then we get the glory, not Him. Then we appear to be sufficient, not Him. Rather, Jesus sets before us impossible tasks that we cannot accomplish apart from Him. That we might learn to trust that He is sufficient, not that we are. That He is enough, not that we are. Listen, as one commentator wrote, he said, It is not God's intention that we should be in and of ourselves adequate to our tasks. 
Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate to them. If we only accept the task that we think are adapted to our powers, we will not respond to the call of God. The church is always in a crisis and always will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems. In other words, problems without a solution. Lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite these things, they are precisely the conditions or the seedbed requisite for the doing of it. Do you hear what he's saying? That only the inadequate or adequate, only the helpless can help. Only the unqualified are qualified to the work that God calls them to. Because He doesn't say, hey, here's what you're able to do. Here's the possibilities in your realm of abilities. Do this. He says, this is impossible apart from me. So I am the only one who can be enough to achieve and accomplishment. it. And listen, let me break it down for you real practically. I feel this every single week. Can I just be real honest with you? Every single week as I prepare for the task of preaching, I feel inadequate, I feel helpless, and I feel absolutely unqualified. (laughs) Every week as I prepare to feed the church from the Word of God, I feel totally inadequate to the task. That I'm supposed to bring something to God's people that would challenge them, that would bring conviction, that would bring encouragement, that would be a blessing. I feel absolutely helpless to be able to do that week in and week out. Listen, every single Sunday morning, right when I get up in the morning and I begin to go over and pour over what I prepared that week, I'm like, really? God, is, <laughs> this doesn't feel like enough to bring the kind of change and transformation I know that I need, much less the transformation that they perceive themselves to be needing in this day and this moment. God, this doesn't feel like enough. It's just me saying to them, live, trust Jesus, abide in Him. Just words. It doesn't feel like enough. It feels inadequate. I feel it every single week as I try to prepare to feed the sheep. I also feel it every single week as I try to prepare to preach to those who are not in Christ. I feel totally inadequate to the task. To look out to them and say, live, Trust Jesus. Treasure Him above all things. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Him. Begin to walk in Him. Begin to order your life around Him. Treasure Him above all things. Trust Him with everything. I feel totally inadequate every week to say, really, that, that's, that, that's going to save people? I feel completely inadequate. And this sense of inadequacy, listen church, has only been amplified over the last couple of months as I preach into the lens of this camera. And I do not see the faces of people and see how the word is falling upon them. I feel helpless. But I want you to know something. I believe, based on this text, it's exactly where God wants me to be. Exactly where He wants me to be completely insufficient in myself, completely inadequate in myself, completely helpless in myself, completely dependent upon Him to be enough. And if I, if I waited until I felt adequate, qualified, and helpful, I would never preach another sermon for the rest of my days. In fact, I think if, 
you're a pastor out there listening to this, if you feel sufficient in and of yourself when you stand up on Sunday morning to preach, you've lost the sense. You've lost the sense that this is God's work, not yours. I wonder how many of us in the ministries that God has called us to, not only in the preaching ministry, but the practical ministry of the church. When somebody shows up needing assistance and we say, hey, here's, here's, here's some money to put groceries on your table whenever they've got this massive need in their life. Do, do, do we feel that that's inadequate? I hope that we do. When somebody shows up and, lonely, and they're lonely and we move toward them in fellowship and community, or they've been broken by the sins of others and they need their lives rebuilt with the message of mercy of Jesus, and we just befriend them and we just show up in the hospital or we show up in the courtroom or we show up in their living room and we just feel, I, I don't know what to say. I feel completely inadequate. Listen, that is exactly where God wants you to be. Because if you felt like it was possible in and of yourself, then you would not be where God wanted you to be because He wants to do the impossible through you. He wants to enable you to carry out what you cannot do. And listen, church, in the wake of COVID-19, there will be all sorts of ways that God will call the church to help rebuild the lives of people that we are totally inadequate, totally unqualified, and totally helpless to do in and of ourselves. But I want to remind you of the good news that though he, that we are inadequate, He's enough, church. Though we are unqualified, He is enough. Though we are helpless, He is enough. Though things seem impossible to us, He is enough. Trust the sufficiency of Jesus to become what you cannot be and do what you cannot do. We could probably tell story after story of ways in which God has brought about transformation and change in our lives and of ways that God has worked through us in impossible circumstances that we never would have envisioned. But my hope is that you would have your own story about that. This morning, I hope that the, what, this message has been a blessing to you. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I hope maybe it's brought challenge and conviction in your life as you learn that the deliverance that you need is not always the deliverance that you want. That there are things inside of you that are worse than things outside of you. You need to pray for miracles to happen in here just as much as you pray for miracles to happen out there. And secondly, that you would trust the sufficiency of Jesus. That He's enough. That He's enough to fill you with life as He blessed as he, was, as he blessed us and was broken for us, that we might become what we cannot be and carry out what we cannot do. We pray for us as a church that God would make those truths real today, not only true today. We must pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of the Scriptures. We thank you that upon them we're able to build our lives, that we can feast on them, and through feasting on them as your people, those who have responded to the message of Jesus, those who have trusted in Him, those who are, are feasting upon His body that was broken for us. As we feast upon Him, we feast upon His Word, that we as your people will become what we could not be apart from you. That we would not settle for a, 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 a hypocritical play acting
But nor will we settle for this is just the way things are always going to be in my life. But that we would pray for miracles to happen within us. We would pray that we would become people who are loving, not just lusting after power and authority, but we're able to love people and not use them. We become people who are generous with our time and our money, that we would lay it aside, we would lay it down for the sake of others and for the sake of your mission and your kingdom. Father, we become people who are not just selfish and always looking for ways that we could leverage circumstances for our benefit, but we would look for ways in which we were able to lay ourselves down for the sake of others. That God, that we would become what we could not be on our own as we pray for miracles to happen within us because we know that the things outside of us are not our greatest enemies, but they are the things that are inside of us. And Father, I pray that you would empower us to do what we cannot do that you would raise up men and women under the sound of my voice this morning who would say yes to you in the face of impossible odds, in the face of impossible opposition, in the face of impossible lack of resources, that you might work through them for the good of the world and for your glory unto all eternity. Fathers, we lift our voices this morning and close of this stream to sing together. Help us to reflect on the truths that we've heard. And would you not only make them true intellectually for us, but make them real in our experience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.